All right, you guys ready to get in some uh, Bible teaching? Cool. Why don't you guys open your Bibles to the book of First Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. In fact, if you would like, while you're turning there, why don't you go ahead and stand. I'm going to read a segment of scripture that we've been in, that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. We're going to kind of come back into and make some final observations with regard to this. And um, my hope would be that this would be of, of incredible encouragement to you. So I'm going to read, picking up at verse uh, 5, and then going on down to verse 10. So listen up. glasses here you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ for it stands in scripture behold i am laying in zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so the honor is for you who believe But for you who do not believe, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and they were destined to do so. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once... You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we ask you right now, speak to our hearts. Let your word take deep root and begin to grow. And do what you desire for it to do. So enable us right now, we pray, and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll grab a seat. So what I want to look at this morning is I want to just really think about the idea that God is building something. And we looked at this idea a couple weeks ago or last week, whenever it was. I'm totally confused with regard to the transition and baptism and all the other type of stuff that we've had going on. But I know it was in the past. I know we began to talk about this idea that God is actually up to building something. So what is God building. So last week we looked at how is God building. Now I want to look at more. So what is God building? And to just simply give the quick answer to that next slide, God is actually building three things that Peter tells us. Number one is a spiritual household. Verse five tells us that. Also verse five tells us that God is building a temple. So this is different metaphorical language or terminology that Peter uses to identify what is God doing. Thirdly, what I want to really develop now is just this concept that God is actually building Zion. So this is a huge, huge topic. So we see this in verse 6. He says, I'm laying a stone in Zion, this chief cornerstone. And the big idea that he's going to begin to convey is that you build your life around this. Now, a little bit of context I think is important because Peter is writing to a community of followers of Jesus that have basically built their life on Jesus. However, they find themselves, even though they built their lives on Jesus, in, in really difficult circumstances. They are oppressed. They're pushing, being shoved off to the margins. They're not being given the promotions that they desire. They're being hated upon, being disliked, dis, uh, discredited. This is the this is the experience that they find themselves. We might want to describe it as they are deeply suffering. And in some ways, I want you to just think about that because. There is an American version of the Christian gospel that basically says, follow Jesus and your life is going to go swimmingly. That, by the way, is a complete lie. It's not true. Following Jesus does not somehow keep you immune from trouble or difficulty or hardship. In fact, I would suggest it's one of the number one causes as to why people deconstruct their faith at some point 
later on in their life because they face suffering. They might go multiple years, decades without facing major, major suffering. And then they do. But then they fall back upon the narrative they were given. Hey, follow Jesus. Life's going to be awesome. And now it's no longer awesome. And now they have to deconstruct this edifice that they've been given. And I would suggest to you, this is what Peter's saying is that, look, to, to build your life around Jesus does not mean that you will not face suffering. You will face suffering. Hardships will come. But it will provide a future for you that's unlike any other. And this is what I want for us to begin to think about. Uh, raises the question, again, going back to the bigger picture, what exactly is God up to? What is he doing? And this is where I want to try to begin to develop this notion, this idea that God is actually building Zion. This is, this is a massive theme. I'm not going to be able to do it justice in the little limited time that we have together here this morning. But the, the, the word Zion actually appears about 157 times in the Old Testament alone. That's not including New Testament stuff. So in other words, this is a very, very large topic and theme. Now, throughout the Old Testament, you'll see, you'll see appearances of Zion referring to like the daughter of Zion, the virgin daughter of Zion, David's city. There are even occasions throughout the Psalms that it's described as like God's dwelling place, God's presence. Um, in other portions, it begins to sort of create kind of this, um, this uniting between God and people. That's almost like you can't, you can't separate the one from the other, that they're, they're so deeply integrated and connected that they're kind of like one. So this concept of Zion not only is a physical, actual location. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you can go to and tour the ancient city of Zion. They've, they've actually discovered it and found it. And it's something they're continuing to, through archaeological digs, discover. So there is a, there's a physical location of Zion. But the metaphorical aspect is something that continues to be uh, multiplied throughout scriptures. And this is the idea that I want for us to think about. So again, for example, Zion is also uh, described as the beloved place where God actually enjoys. So Psalm 87 verse 2, you get a passage like this. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. Just think about that. God's like, look, yeah, some of these other places, they're, they're all right, but Zion, I Love. I love Zion. There's something unique about Zion that God actually has set his affection on. And this is language that, again, Peter picks up. Again, he uses Old Testament passages to refer to this concept of Jesus being the cornerstone. And this is what I want for us to begin to think about. So you can see kind of Zion appear in at least like three different movements. Number one, Yahweh's purpose, God's purpose. God has a purpose or intention. You might even want to think of it this way. Zion is sort of the template. It's, it's the depiction as to what happens or should be what happens when everything goes right and everything is in alignment with the way that Yahweh and, and, and desired for the world to be. Um, however, we know that that's not how the story goes because the prophets come on the scene like Isaiah and um, Ezekiel and some of these other prophets that basically come on the scene and they essentially cast a, a curse upon Zion because Zion drifts far away from God's intention. And as a, instead of bringing justice, it becomes these, these citadels of injustice and brokenness and destruction and all sorts of uh, maladies that God was never intending to take place. However, we see that Zion also becomes this place where a redemption is going to take place. God is going to restore and redeem and renew Zion, which we'll look at in just a moment. So what I want to do right now is I want to move on to basically three aspects I think that Zion can be broken down into. And I'll go through these real quickly. So number one, we want to look at this idea of Zion being contrasted with Sinai. And now again, I'm not making these up. These are just basically pulled from New Testament pictures. So again, we're trying to follow a journey or a theme or a word and letting the New Testament 
Testament tour guides kind of take us on this journey to try to understand what does Zion actually mean and why is it important. We'll, we'll end with some really practical uh, things to consider. So number one, Zion contrasted with Sinai. This is the idea of grace is greater than law. So for example, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 25 says this. And I'll just read select passages in here just to get the point. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is the idea that when Moses, as well as the children of Israel, came to this region called Sinai, or Mount Sinai, where they received the Ten Commandments. And it was sort of this covenant where the people of Israel kind of signed this agreement or created this agreement with God that God initiated. And they essentially said, we will be followers of Yahweh. We will do everything that Yahweh tells us to do in terms of the Ten Commandments. If you're familiar with that story, those well intentions didn't go very far, right? If you follow and have read anything in the Old Testament, you know that the people of Israel, no matter how well-intentioned they were, uh, they drifted, which tells you something about good intentions. Good intentions are good, but they're not enough. They're not enough. They're not enough to, uh, to shape or sculpt a future and a hope in a lifestyle that is of any sustainability or success. It goes on to say in verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. There's our word to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to God, the judge of all to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So again, just think about the word association with the word Zion. Again, listen to it again. Uh, you've come to Mount Zion, the living God associate the word Zion with these words, living God, heavenly Jerusalem, the God, the judge to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The, the word Zion begins to take sort of the shape of God's presence. It's where God dwells. It's where heaven meets earth in a tangible way, where goodness comes, where justice flows like a river, if you would. Where all of the wickedness and the evil and the pain and the shame and the hardships and struggles and difficulties and tears, they, they, they're confronted by Yahweh God and they're overcome. This, is, by the way, is not done through law. Again, laws are important. We need laws. Society needs laws. So again, take, for example, the subject of, of racism. You can have laws that say if you are a racist, this is what will happen to you. But laws are insufficient of changing the heart. They won't make you love a person with a different amount of tone in their skin. It won't turn you into somebody that's deeply devoted to another person. It cannot do that. Laws are important for society. So, again, we would look at this and say, grace is actually greater than laws. This is why the gospel is so powerful. And many of us have just sort of a cursory familiarity with it. What I'm trying to suggest to you is that the gospel is so potent, so powerful, it will change the entirety of your future and your present. To embrace it. It will change your heart. That's what grace does. How does it do that? It does it in this way of when you meet this God that is so deeply devoted and loyal to you in spite of how disloyal you have been. In spite of who you are, he loves you. In spite of what you've done, he's taken upon himself those consequences. And in exchange has shown you favor instead of alienation. Man, that does something to your heart. 
So we see, as it goes on to say, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For, and I'll read, it's not up in here, but just listen to the rest of it. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape if we reject who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The big idea that he's saying here is that, look, if even the people of Israel, they did not escape the consequences of, of their own sin and their unrighteousness and their brokenness and their rejection of Yahweh God that came from this Mount Sinai and through the law, how much more will we think? Again, we get this idea of like, ah, oh, the God of grace, he just lets things skate by. No, he doesn't, guys. He's, he's a holy God. He, will, he has to, by way of his nature, deal with injustice and sin and brokenness, and he will. But the point of the matter, as he's saying, is that we have been brought into something new that can be identified as Zion, which is grace that's greater than law. Secondly, I want to take a look at Zion contrasted with Babylon. Zion contrasted with Babylon. And anyway, I get this from Revelation chapter 14. I'll just read a couple of selected passages again. And verse 1 says this, Then I looked, and behold, Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name, the name of the father's uh, name written on their foreheads. It is these who have not defiled themselves. It is these who follow the lamb. Wherever he goes, it is these who have been redeemed. And then goes on down to verse 8, says this. And then I heard another angel, is contrasting, uh, saying, fallen is Babylon, fallen, fallen, Babylon the great. She who made the nations drunk, drink the wine of passion of her immorality. And again, the contrast here is between Babylon. So what is Babylon? So throughout scripture, um, if you are familiar with the storyline of the people of Israel, they get sold off into Babylon. Um, Babylon sort of becomes kind of this, uh, this quintessential example of the oppressive enemy. Um, in the New Testament, you even see the New Testament writers referring to like Rome as being kind of like Babylon. The big idea is it's sort of this template of the oppressor. Um, if you want to think of it this way, Babylon is the default societal norm of our culture. Like, wh- where is Babylon? Babylon's all around us. Babylon is Iran. Babylon is America. Babylon is Russia. And, and some of you might be offended by that because you put too much energy and hope and love in America. Think about that. Babylon is every operating system that is not God's. And there's a distinction between the empire and kingdom. God has a kingdom that he's breaking forth. And that's distinct from every other empire. The empire comes in all forms and shapes and sizes. And it possesses all other forms of people groups and nations and cultures and ethnicities on this planet. And I want us to think about this, that Zion is deeply contrasted from Babylon. God will rescue people. If you put your hope, again, it doesn't matter. I mean, America is, I think, a great country. It's not Zion, though. This is what I'm trying to say. As great as a place we live in, it is not Zion. It is not God's kingdom. There's deficiencies. There's areas where it's broken. I I think it's a great self-corrective system that when it gets brought to the attention of the deep injustices and brokennesses that are there there are self-corrective ways to make it better but at the end of the day it is not zion and this is what we see with regard to that so god's kingdom is actually greater than cultic empire and cultic empire is basically the default of every other people group or society on planet earth 
Thirdly, we see Zion embodied by Jesus. And that's where I want to wrap it up with some final thoughts. Again, we circle back to the passage in First Peter chapter 2. And I'll just read this little section from verse 6 to 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 28. Uh, verse 7 says, So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone which the builders have rejected has actually become the chief cornerstone. The stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. And both of these are quotes from the Old Testament. All of them. There's actually three of them right here. And the big idea that Peter's trying to bring to our awareness, our attention, is that God is actually up to doing something right now in this world. And he's inviting us to respond to that. In fact, it's so extensive that it actually says that one day all human beings will actually have to, to face, will have to reckon with this God that created them. And what he's saying is that those that turn to Jesus now as a cornerstone and frame their lives around that, which will end with some final, like, very practical questions as to what does it mean to actually frame your life around Jesus being the cornerstone. But in the end, what we basically notice is that he's saying is that if either you frame your life around him now, so in other words, you allow him to impose his rule upon your life right now, and you adjust your life around that, you say that, that feels obstructive. Trust me, it's way better than what the future obstruction will feel like. But what he's saying is that we will all face this one, this God that created all things, this God in whom that we have hope for final justice in dealing with all the deep injustices and brokennesses within this world that we will have to face him at some day. That the point is that all of us are building our lives on something. The question is, is what? This is where I want to get, again, think about this. In our world today, there is a lot of question as to what are we really building? And I would even suggest that as far as all political systems and structures go, it's, it's the same thing. Everybody's wanting to build Zion, but in reality, they're, for the most part, building Babylon. Various versions of Babylon. So, for example, those that might be on the right, they might say you want economic prosperity or freedom or liberty or a future. You know what you really want? You want Zion. Those on the left, they say, I want justice, a healthy environment, a renewed planet. I don't want anybody to be sick. You want Zion. But what Jesus is saying here is that you cannot have the kingdom without the king. They go hand in hand. That's what our world is deeply committed to right now is we want the kingdom. We want traits or elements or versions of this kingdom, but we don't want the king. And what Peter sings, you cannot have them both or separate. You cannot distinguish between the two. You must acknowledge the fact that the kingdom is framed or built around this cornerstone. You omit the cornerstone and you'll build a kingdom that will collapse in on itself. And this is what I think is so important for us to understand. As he finishes with this final thought, I just want to get very practical there and I'm done. So I want to simplify all this as much as I can and just kind of ask this bigger question. What does it really mean on a very, very, very practical level to just build your life with Jesus as a chief cornerstone? Just three simple things to think about. Hopefully you can, anything, just take away this and hopefully it will help you consider what this looks like. Number one, Jesus first, Jesus fully, Jesus forever. Number one, Jesus first. It means we trust in him above and beyond all other things. It means, let's, for example, like getting involved in a church, where we're going to take a job, where we're going to move, who we're going to marry. We don't consult our friends first. And I, and I see this a lot. Like, hey, you want to get involved in the church? Uh, I don't know. Let me check with my, my friends. 
do you realize that it's very possible that we could be actually building, or, you know, should I get involved? Let me check my checkbook first. Let me, and again, there's nothing wrong with having points of connection. But the point that I would make is that when those become the default first place that we turn to, is it not possible that we're actually framing our lives upon something other than Jesus as the cornerstone? Jesus first. Secondly, Jesus fully. I like to think of it this way. Jesus is a load-bearing king. He can bear the load of your life. Can we think of the cornerstone? Again, if you go back into Israel and you see kind of these massive cornerstones, they're huge, enormous cornerstones that everything else was built upon. They were intended to be load-bearing. And they've lasted for 2,000 years. So again, these, these are human constructions. What Jesus is saying is that I, I'm not human. I'm eternal, and I can bear the weight of anything and everything you have going on in your life. Fully bear the weight of it all. That means that whatever it is that you're going through in your life, Jesus will always, always be there to carry you. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be struck down with moments of anxiety and stress and pressure and sickness, and disease, and hardships, and trials, and divorces, and job losses, and promotion pass-ups, and all of these things that we deal with. But it means that when those things come, you have a God that can carry you in the midst of those things. And then lastly, Jesus forever. And this is borrowed from a name of a book written by Eugene Peterson, a long obedience in the same direction. This is not just a one-up, like, hey, I asked Jesus in my heart back when I was like 18, and now, you know, 20 years off, I'm just still trying to figure it out. No, no, this is, this is forever. This is us saying to the one who has given himself to us, this is a long obedience. There's going to be ups, there's going to be downs, there's going to be moments of movement forward, there's going to be moments where it feels like I'm just moving backwards. But this is a long obedience in the same direction. And I'm going to finish this with a final thought. And I kind of wrestled with even doing this, but thought, you know, I think at the end of the day, I think it's important for us to just think about, like, how do we embody this? And I'm, just, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my, my wife and I. Just, again, that sounds kind of weird, but I'll just tell you this story. So my wife and I, we met back when we were almost 16 years old. I became a Christian, and I started following Jesus with all my heart, like, I, I literally had a radical conversion from someone that was not a Christian. I grew up in the Catholic church, going to church every single Sunday. I knew about God, never really knew God fully until I was around late 15, almost 16 years old. I had a radical conversion actually in a church parking lot. And my, I got involved in a high school group and I met my wife and we became friends. And at that point, I began to just read books and read scripture and meet with people and throw myself into involvement in the church and began to literally just look at the sum total of my life and say, everything about my life, I want to be framed around what God wants for me to do. I mean, even questions like, should I go to Wednesday night Bible study? God, do you want me to go to Wednesday night Bible study? Yeah, it feels really uncomfortable for me. I don't really know anybody. I'm kind of new to this whole church thing. I'm not really even sure what they're doing. When everybody gathers around, they kind of do this thing called popcorn prayer. I don't know what that is. It sounds stupid. Everybody closes their eyes when they sing and they raise their hands. That looks really stupid too. I'm not even sure if I want to do that because it looks creepy and weird and they all look like freaks. And the bottom line is this is that I begin to just ask myself, God, do you want me to do this? This is not about how I feel, what I think, what I want to do, what's comfortable for me. God, do you want me to do this? Are there areas you're wanting to stretch me beyond what I'm comfortable with? And my wife and I began to 
move closer in a relationship, and then begins this question of like, should I marry her? Should, should that even be part of my, and again, where did I go? How did we, how did my wife and I both kind of figure this whole thing out? We, we didn't consult necessarily each other. Yes, we had people that were wise in our lives and we asked them, what do you think about this? One of the questions that I think people, they put back to me, I remember wise counsel was, was given back to me. How, as far as your relationship goes, how do you feel like you guys are pressing each other on in towards greater Christ-likeness? And one of the reasons why, by the way, that New Testament describes, you know, don't be unequally yoked together with non-believers. Look, if, if you're passionate about Jesus and your spouse doesn't care, I guarantee you there will come a point in your life when you're trying to put your kids to bed and in your mind, like, I want to say prayers to them. And the husband's like, I don't really care about even saying prayers to them because I don't even believe in God. Trust me, trust me, trust me. At some point, that will become a deep, deep ache in your soul. We began to just ask this question, like, what, what does God want for us? Does he want us to be married? Because I like you, I think I think you like me, and I think we got some stuff going on here that's good. And I think we are pressing each other on towards greater Christ-likeness, and that that seems to be good. But does God want us to take this good thing and move it into a thing that's that's a forever thing? There's a difference between that. Just a good thing, because good things can sometimes come to an end. But is this something that God is giving each other? So we begin to ask God, God, what do you want for our lives? Do you want us to be married? And if so, and finally we began to realize that God wanted us to get married. And then the question began, when, when does God want us to get married? And again, I'm not going to go into all my story. And then once we got married, finally, again, fast forward a little bit. We began to ask God, where do you want us to live? We began to sense God maybe stirring in our hearts to move to San Luis Obispo. We didn't know anybody in San Luis Obispo. By the way, I didn't even graduate. I'm going to barely graduate from high school. Barely graduate from high school. 1.8. There you go. Why, why, why move to a college town? I don't know. God has a sense of humor? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. But it doesn't need to make sense to me. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? It doesn't need to make sense to us. When we make sense the standard, the cornerstone by which we shape our lives, what we are doing is we are saying, I want to be in power. Not God. It's a different foundation. Brothers and sisters. What it means to follow Jesus is to put Jesus first, Jesus fully, Jesus forever. Didn't make sense for us to move up here, but we knew that God was telling us to move up here. So we moved up here. We didn't have jobs. We didn't have the place to live. We didn't have a church. We didn't know anything, but we knew that God was calling us, plant a church. We're like, we don't know what that looks like. How do we do that? I don't know. Just move. We did. 30 some odd years later, I got two daughters, son-in-law. Amazing church community, people that have been impacted by the church around the world, mind-blowing. We, we, we can't take credit for this. We didn't do this. We just, we just followed the cornerstone. Cornerstone did this, said this, followed it. I can't tell you what your life's going to look like, guys. I, I can't tell you for sure you will have suffering. I guarantee you, you will go through moments where it will be tough. Your expectations of as to what you thought things were going to look like, your marriage is going to look like, your kids were going to look like, your job is going to look like, your future is going to look like. I guarantee you, all of that at some point will fail you. Guarantee you. Jesus will never, ever fail you. Frame your life around him. Guys, so stoked for you. So stoked for you. Frame your life around him. Ask him where he's going to lead you. Seek counsel. Find other people that are 
godly mentors in your life. Get wisdom from them. This is how we move forward. This is how we grow. And I want to finish just by having us stand. We'll partake of communion together, and that's kind of how we're going to close up here. So why don't we all stand? Mike's going to lead us in a song. Um, and again, as we pivoted to moving indoors, we're still kind of in this process of like trying to figure things out and how to, how to do stuff. So be patient with us as we continue to try to figure this whole thing out. Um, but as far as communion goes, we have communion up front. And so you're more than welcome to either come to the front, right here, right here, in the back, back there, uh, in the table back there. You're more than welcome to just go take one of the like little cups and as we finish up we'll partake of communion together and um and if you're here this morning and there's just anything that's going on in your life you need prayer for anything and again I, I i get it sometimes sensing god's voice can be hard trying to figure that out and we don't expect anybody to do this alone that's why we're here together as a community and I want to invite you, if you just need prayer for anything that's going on, I'll be up in the front. We'll have some other ushers and leaders and elders up in the front just being able to be available to pray with you. So Michael, lead us in a little song. Feel free to go ahead and grab some communion. And then in a minute or two, we'll come back and we'll partake together. And we'll, we'll let you guys go. Jesus, right now we confess our need for you. We confess our sin, our brokenness, our inability to hear things rightly. Sometimes the fact that we are misguided by our deep, deep desires. We let those things guide us, even our fears, our anxieties, our worries. All of these things are become sort of like the GPS that guide us. And what we really need is to just get rid of the whole GPS analogy and just go back to a cornerstone analogy and reality just confess we need you Jesus so in faith we turn to you and in repentance we confess those areas of brokenness